0: Um, okay, so now we're going to move to uh, a, a case-based discussion that uh, will be led by uh, Joe Iron, who is a uh, well known to this audience uh, as well uh, for many years uh, con- uh, participating in this course and many others and, and being the, uh, the Glenn Close of, uh, of uh, Croy when he shows up at the, uh, at the microphone to ask a question. Today, he's going to be at the microphone, uh, but asking us questions about uh, cases that he's uh, brought to uh, to uh, have uh, you all discuss uh, and use your uh, handheld devices and uh, go through some of the finer points of where we are with antiretroviral therapy today. Joe is a professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina uh, and uh, will be uh, leading the ACDG uh, about two years hence uh, to... Uh, answer some of the questions that you've been asking today. Uh, Joe, welcome. Great.
1: So we we got my
0: my victims coming up here.
1: That's great. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. It's uh, fun to be invited. Um, I'm not Mike Sag. Mike Sag usually does this. Um, There will be no show tunes. Uh, I will not sing any show tunes, um, uh, for those of you who know Mike Sag. uh, and and we'll kind of get right into it. Uh, and and I think we're more than happy to have discussion from, from the audience when the answers are out there. I think to be as interactive as possible would be would be great. Um, I I I have to tell this really short story. It's really short because I can see chips on his phone. Uh, when I gave my when I gave my when I gave my very first talk at a at a big the three DC talk. I, I, like, thanked people when I started, and I said, and I want to thank Chip for staying on the stage for the entire talk. And he actually got up and left the stage. <laughs> this was a long time ago, but he was still funny. Um, these are my disclosures, um, and, and um, I, I would, I, I think uh, what Steve said right in the beginning If if you feel like any of us are biased, we really would like to know about it. Um, uh, We are kind of integrated with these companies in part so we can get the best drugs for our studies and and do the best studies possible, so please please let us know. Um, So these are the um, uh, objectives. One is to list the three regimens that are recommended for first line for uh, DHHS for most patients, um, describe the prevalence of resistance um, to different classes of antiretroviral agents and how they impact initial therapy choice, and then um, describe some potential advantages or adverse effects on uh, uh, which, which we see with initial therapy with integrase inhibitors. So now we're going to jump right into it. We're going to talk about cases. Um, I did t- borrow a little bit from Mike in that s- the cases are uh, uh, tried to be structurally kind of similar, at least in the beginning. Um, So this is a a 35-year-old man who has sex with men who was recently diagnosed with HIV infection. You do know his CD4. It's high. It's uh, 535. His viral load is 87,000, so less than 100,000. He has no comorbid conditions. His ALT is normal. His creatinine is uh, 0.9, and his total cholesterol is 150. Um, His husband is HIV negative and was recently tested and accompanies him to his visit. However... Um, His uh, hepatitis C uh, antibody, his hepatitis B antibody and antigen, his B5701, and his HIV, uh, uh, RT, and protease genotyping, which is what we get at our um, site in North Carolina, are all pending. Um, So the very first question, which is uh, pretty straightforward, is would you start antiretroviral therapy now, meaning at this visit? You have some data. He's with his partner. Um, uh, he's engaged, he wants to uh, be treated and and would you do it, yes, no or not sure I I did choose the music wow (laughs) can you guys see this? Um, so, so ninety-one percent. Yes, nobody said no, and a couple people are not sure. So, so
2: Connie, what, what do you think? <laughs> you can go against the grain. I'm, I'm all for that. You know, I think, I think the answers reflect where we are currently sitting. <laughs> with San sure. Francisco leading the way for immediate initiation of antiretroviral therapy. I guess based on the. Uh, data you presented in the case, I wouldn't be uncomfortable with starting right away, but like many things, San Francisco leads the way and how well it penetrates into other settings doesn't necessarily match. And there are major advocates of immediate initiation of antiretroviral therapy, and then there are others who take a more cautious view that we really need better information about the patient you're encountering before we immediately start antiretroviral therapy. I haven't fully decided where I sit, so I'm probably in that not sure Mm -hmm. category, but uh, I would have no problem with starting therapy right now if the patient wanted to be started that day and getting some of those other data in follow-up. Over time.
1: Great. Hyman, would you say something different? I guess you're also being from San Francisco. Francisco.
3: Um, Yeah, so we uh, encounter this frequently, and we have the rapid program where we actually offer same-day therapy and we actually do DOT with the first dose and um, the experience we're still evaluating it but there's something about um, what happens when somebody gets the diagnosis of HIV and then is able to actually start the treatment immediately. So. Um, we offer therapy to everyone, not everyone takes it. Mm. Um, but we have a system set up in which people who do want to initiate therapy uh, are able to do so immediately. So we have a universal offer of therapy and um, I would say probably a universal recommendation um, right. to start therapy. Um, and we have had quite good uptake uh, when people are able to access yeah. it.
1: Uh, Chip.
0: I was going to say, I, I think what uh, what Hyman said was important, uh, offer therapy. Uh, taking into account the patient's uh, scenario, because we get a lot of these programmatic, um, we get a lot of papers submitted to a journal I'm involved with, in which <coughs> uh, the um, it's a failure if a patient doesn't start therapy in front of you, uh, and the programs are evaluating themselves on that basis. And uh, if you lose track of the patients in the program, you may start their, uh, therapy on somebody who um, uh, needs a, a little bit of time to think about it, and if you push them too hard because you're worried about your program metrics, uh, you end up... Uh, with someone who gets lost to follow up. So I, I would encourage people to, yes, the message is, uh, if the patient's ready and you're ready, go right ahead. But uh, uh, patients, we see patients one at a time and don't lose track mm-hmm. of that in these in big programs are trying to, to have everybody start uh, within 20 milliseconds of the diagnosis.
1: Yeah, I think also, uh, you know, based on where I live, where Medicaid hasn't been expanded and other things, it's really challenging, actually, to start. I mean, if someone has actually private insurance, it's feasible, but but many times it's not. So I think that's an important thing to, to consider. And I'm sure, I mean, in, in your clinic, the person who decides not to start, you know, isn't ostracized or looked at funny. I mean, they're they're
3: absolutely we, we respect patient autonomy and um sure. they can uh <laughs> really? yeah they can they can, can decide whether or not they want to i i think the other piece is that we may get into this but you know he has a partner um so whatever their um sexual relationships are yep. if there's any substance yep. use that's really use. important and sure. um you know i think from my perspective has it ever been a history of prep yep. which i think we'll get oh to. that yeah that's
1: important sure absolutely I, that might come yeah. later too today yeah.
3: um Um, I, I think from our community work, um, sort of taking it outside and being worried about somebody else and transmission actually can undermine your efforts and patients say, you know, you're my doctor and I'm here to see you. I wanna know what you think is the best thing for my health. And so we recommend offering, we offer therapy immediately um, and uh, allow individuals if they want to, you know, delay. But there is that component. We do involve the partner, so he he de- the partner is important and comes to the visit. But that's not necessarily the best thing for their health. Yeah,
1: I, I think it's a debate as to yeah. whether yeah. they actually have yeah. long term better outcomes. There's some. Data from well, there's, there's the start, certainly data yeah. from uh, developing world countries that suggest improved survival and other yeah. things. I, th- I think the data here in the U.S. is not quite as certain. Uh, I think,
4: but, but I would say we have data that, that are short-ish term data, but that several years out, more people are virologically suppressed if they had a rapid start and more on ART. Now does that what does that mean in 20 years? I don't think we know. Yeah. But but if your goal is to get them virologically suppressed. Y- it's a good so start. Faster. They right. can do so faster and stay on it. So there's a retention component. Okay,
1: I'm, I'm going to have one yep. more question, then I'm going to keep going.
4: I think it's interesting this question, because I was just testing a, uh, a resource where you have a
3: lot of people helping one patient. because um, If you really want to turn a question to what you're saying, you have a lot of resources for each patient, and half are randomly assigned to start right, right away, and half are randomly assigned sure. to start right away. And
1: not really yeah. of the and there was a study at Croy called "I Engage yeah. where they actually did randomize people to more intensive help versus versus usual help. And it's in the context of clinics and scenics that are mostly Ryan White clinics, and they absolutely saw no difference, actually. Yeah. Uh, but that wasn't a rapid-start randomization. So your, your point's well taken. but But it didn't seem like that additional support was actually necessary to get people suppressed. But we, should, we should keep going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep us going because Steve told me keep people going. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, you, so you're going to start, 91% of you. Um, uh, and, and so here are your choices. Now, I just want to um, say that there's some generic choices up here. So look, maybe in San Francisco or uh, in proximity to San Francisco, there's no push towards generic. Um, but, but go ahead and, and look through these. I'm definitely not going to read them all. Uh, and uh, 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 tell us what you would start. Again, you have no hepatitis B, you have no resistance testing, you have no hepatitis C information, but you do have a viral load and a CD4. So go ahead and vote. (laughs) <laughs> they're, they're, um, these kind of when to start questions are going to not show up a lot of diversity, I don't think, over over time here. Um, uh, y- you might argue that there's at least one one wrong answer here, may- maybe two actually, in in the context of uh, of uh, this. Uh, uh, so, Annie, you haven't had a chance to.
4: I I would say uh, using a back of ear would not be a good idea because we don't have the HLA B5701 data. We also don't have the HEP B data, although I would say that that's less important in the very short term than knowing that someone's not HLA B5701. So I think that that is wrong, or I would stay wrong ish. Wrong ish, right. (laughs) It's 2019. Nobody's really wrong anymore, I guess. I don't know. I, uh, that's what box. I'm told. My kids come home with a lot of trophies, and they didn't win that much. I'll just say that. <laughs> um, yeah, so sorry about that, because uh, I can make fun of my own children. Yeah, So um, and part of it has to do with what you have available. Connie was asking, what do we use for our Rapid Start program? And we use Dolotegavir Descoby because we can get it. Um, And so a lot of these options are gonna be what can you get? I mean, I know people are very taken by the one pill once a day, but it's what you can get and that the patient can continue to get. So I think there's a lot of um, reasonable answers here. And then I would probably stay away from a boosted um, agent first line if you don't have to use that. And I'm not seeing a reason in this scenario that you would have to use that unless there were real concerns about drug resistance. Um, And I'll say again, in our program we've not had a lot of issues, and we don't have a whole history here, but in someone who just walks in the door where providing them with an integrase and Descovy not, was not effective for them, but you need to be able to follow them up.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, I also probably, I, I, again, I don't know a lot about San Francisco, but in North Carolina, about 10% of new diagnoses, especially recent, have NNRTI resistance, and it's yeah. almost all yeah. uh, 103N and, and 181C, but mostly 103N. And so I probably wouldn't start in a Favrins based regimen. Yeah, I just regimen.
4: ignored that because I just couldn't. Nobody's yeah. going to. Yeah. Is I anybody
1: here good. compelled yeah. to use generic drugs yet in your practice? I, I'm not. So I don't. No, nobody has yet been compelled. Starting They're starting to push it, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I had a um, patient who, low viral load, abnormal creatinine, who I, I tried to start on Dalyotagra 3TC. They said I had to use generic 3TC. The, the, the patient actually had some crazy insurance where the copay for generic 3TC was like 25 or $40, but he had no money, so uh, I could give him a copay card for a Bictegravir uh, TAF FTC. So for him, it was cheaper to, to take that therapy, and, and he's my patient. Um, so so um, uh, that's what happened. Um, okay. So uh, a little bit of teaching that you probably all know. These are the recommended first line for most patients. So most patients is important here, and I think that there there the, the are a couple of things. Those of you who uh, ant, uh, took the quiz beforehand notice there are no boosted regimens that are recommended for most patients. None, zero. No cystat is on this by either the DHHS or the ISUSA, and I. I don't know, uh, maybe, Connie, is it fair to say um, that even among IASUSA USA uh, people, um, we did kind of argue about whether our three choices on the right there were really for most patients Um, uh, because there is a choice there that you you can't use with HLA-B57. There is a choice there that you can't use or shouldn't use um, with um, hepatitis B and a choice there that... um, Perhaps you wouldn't use in high cardiovascular risk. So, so um, but but um, no boosters, all integrase, no boosters. Um, but you guys know that um, alternatives that are uh, appropriate for certain situations. And then this is DHHS guidelines, similar to ISUSA. Though ISUSA, because we are published only every two years, um, are, are we're a little bit handicapped in terms of updating. Uh, but Deraverine now is listed as a as a. Uh, uh, to be used in certain clinical situations. Generic uh, favrins TDF-FTC has been added in certain situations, including the 400 milligram, at least in the text, but not necessarily in the table. 3TC is listed as an appropriate substitute for FTC, uh, and use of generics formulations is discussed. And then Connie went through beautifully uh, when you might use um, two-drug therapy, and this is from the uh, DHHS guidelines. So um, I'm not going to... belabor this. All right. So very similar patient, right? Uh, 35-year-old man with sex with men. Um, uh, 535 is his CD4, 87,000. Again, less than 100,000 is RNA. No comorbidities, normal ALT, creatinine, and cholesterol. Um, However, he has multiple partners, some of whom are HIV positive. Uh, Now you have some information. He's uh, hepatitis C antibody positive. He's hepatitis B surface antibody positive. He's HLA-B5701 negative, and um, he has uh, transmitted drug resistance. And this uh, particular combination w- would not be that unusual, uh, at least in North Carolina. I, I don't know the uh, demographic demographics here, but he has um, uh, a 103N. He also has a lot of, of non-gray hair, some gray-haired people here. Uh, he, has, he has two TMs of these uh, AZT resistance mutations, and, and Chip's going to tell you why we still see those um, when we haven't prescribed AZT in, in, in years, if not decades. Um, he has a L90M in protease, boy, that's weird, but Chip will explain that too. And then he has a, 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 <laughs> a T97A in, in integrase. So I'm going I'm to ask, um, is he going off stage again? <laughs> <laughs> He's just so funny. Um, when, when someone says that about me, my wife says, well, looks aren't everything. Um, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, does your baseline resistance testing include integrase testing? This is, this isn't a, this is not incorrect or uh, correct. This is just an answer. Because uh, uh, in North Carolina, at least in Chapel Hill, no. The answer for us is no, because that's how it is. But go ahead and vote. I'm gonna tell a little story while you're voting. We, we, we were talking. We were at an advisory board and we were talking about morbidity and people dying. And someone got confused about who was dead. And and Chip School, he said, "There's only one person that went from being dead to then being dead. Who's that? Can you hear the music? Jerry Garcia. Yeah. <laughs> he said it. I didn't. <laughs> okay, so." I remember really weird things, Chip. <laughs> you, you, you do. You do. Yeah. All right, So right. Oh, I'm glad Connie doesn't. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was going to say something about my wife, but I won't. Um, uh, so a third do, a third don't, and a few people are not sure. Uh, and I think that's pretty common. Actually, in North Carolina, uh, some uh, centers do because they got a deal and they got, they got a cheaper price for the – Uh, I think it's called GeneSure Plus or something where you can actually get integrase and and we don't because we don't have the the, the deal Um, so Chip can you talk about why we still see some TAMs and occasional oddball uh, protease mutations
0: we still have people around who um, have been treated for long periods of time and may have gone off therapy come back on therapy we also have transmitted drug resistance from those people and transmitted drug resistance tends to stick around longer than uh, drug resistance that's selected when you're on therapy. So um, we still see these folks and will probably for a while. Uh, uh, and it's easy to get them back if we start uh, using drugs in sloppy ways.
1: Yeah, and the, 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 the mutations you tend to see are those that have very little hip fitness. Yep. So the TAMs the, 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 um, that you see tend to be ones with very little fitness. You'll see those 215 revertants because they just persist forever. Um, and, uh, and 103N, if you look, I'm sure if you look around here, uh, faverins is going way down. We looked at North Carolina in our database and then looked at uh, 103N in our resistance surveillance, and even though faverns was going way down, um, the 103N was persisting, and again, that's a very low fitness mutation uh, and one that um, uh, uh, then tends to stick around. In fact, we see it in clusters all the time. Connie, you may know this working with Davey and others. We see these resistance mutations in clusters because they get—they're not necessarily transmitted from someone who's on therapy. They're transmitted from someone who got it from someone who got it from someone who got it from someone. It from someone. They don't. Um, so, um, and and then so so now you have someone remember has some thymidine analog mutations has one O three N has a um, uh, a protease inhibitory mutation L ninety M. And then also has this um, uh, T97A mutation in integrase. Uh, So tell me what you think you might use and whether it affects what you're going to do. This is not the Grateful Dead. But it's still good. (laughs) He's just dead, dead, right? (laughs) Eat, <laughs> yeah. Eat a peach. All right. A lot of choices. Ah. Okay. Great. Uh, who? Um, Hyman, you want to uh, speak first? What, what
3: do you think? Sure. I'm not. So the the two TAMS um, you'd be worried about. Generally, we think about more than like four or five TAMS is when you get concerned about having decreased efficacy of your NRTI, so I still think that TAF FTC, um, he did not have the M184V or the K65R, um, so I think a TAF FTC or TDF FTC backbone would be fine, and then um, I believe the 97A is an accessory integrase mutation, so um, I wouldn't be too worried about it taking a hit on the integrases, so um, I would still, probably as first line, go for an integrase, so I think dolutegravir even tagavir would be fine. Yep. Yeah, that makes
4: sense. And can I just make a comment? I saw that you snuck in that he has hepatitis C and we know that you're gonna be eager to treat him. And so one of the choices that people often make is, well, gosh, do I have to think about that? And the good news is, is that we can really treat yeah. almost any regimen, anybody on any regimen with hep C therapy. think it only gets tricky with efavirenz, which we talked about, we don't wanna use anymore. And etravirine, which really we're almost never using. So you can come up with an option with Almost any of these here, so you shouldn't feel hamstrung the way we used to in choosing a regimen that will fit. So you're you're off the hook and get him treated, and then you can treat his Hep C.
1: Yeah, and you might you might end up you know depending on if it's you or your insurance patient's insurance company that's selecting your hepatitis C treatment. Um, so a booster could potentially have some interaction, right. but but um, and and the the darunavir Kobe FDC. Uh, uh, TAF got a little bit higher percentage here. Connie, do you think? I think people are worried that they, there might be stuff underneath there that we're not totally seeing. Maybe that's the logic behind that. For those of you who pushed that button,
2: yeah, I think I think people who push that button are probably like me who don't keep up with every single integrase mutation that exists and weren't sure about that. Um, I still would agree with the. Uh, wasn't impressed with the one integrase mutation that that would affect activity, so I would have still gone with an Mm integrase mutation, although raltegravir would not have been one of them, or a two-drug therapy choice. So I think any of the dolutegravir three-drug choices. Um, I guess I'd go back to asking maybe you, who are more expert on integrase mutations, whether the dolutegravir once-daily or twice-daily decision would play in if sure. you knew yeah, that's you had baseline insti resistance. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so I, I think Hyman and Connie were both totally on the ball. Um, the T97A is, is clearly a polymorphism. The, the reason I included it is if you, um, depending on who does your genotyping and what you get back, some um, uh, of the genotype algorithm scores will actually tick it off as it being uh, L-vitegravir, decreased susceptibility or intermediate resistance or whatever, but, but it's clearly a polymorphisms. Uh, this is a study that we did in, in North Carolina. Uh, Tim Menza, who, who was an ID fellow at the time. Um, what we did is we looked at all the resistance tests that we had in North Carolina, and there were several thousand that we had access to, but we linked it to the state database. So we looked for each, uh, all the resistance tests that were linked within three months of an HIV diagnosis. Now it's not perfect, obviously, right? Um, because someone might have been diagnosed out of state or something like that. But we, we thought that these were likely to be um, a, a, a pre-treatment or, or, or resistance tests of, of, that would reflect transmitted drugs. So we came up with 840 of these. And um, we actually only found uh, two that had really clearly demonstrable um, uh N- Uh, integrase resistance. Uh, One had this S147G mutation. You don't have to remember that one. You always can look these things up. The Stanford website is beautiful. Mike Sag actually includes this one in one of his uh, presentations. And I said, I never heard of it. But it turns out we actually saw it, and it is in the Stanford thing. And then um, the 155H is kind of a classical um, Raltegravir mutation for for people who pay attention to that. Um, You can see we had uh, 103N, which... uh, um, uh, wasn't uh, too surprising. And then you can see there's a whole smattering of uh, uh, T97A, which, again, if you look at Stanford, it says it's about 5%, but I think it's actually a little bit higher than 5% as a polymorphism. And there are a couple other polymorphisms, uh, the L74M, uh, uh, and if you were at CROI and were paying attention, you might know something about L74I, which came up a few times in the Cabotegravir presentation, but those are all polymorphisms. So uh, I think that um, it's, at least in North Carolina, and I suspect here, it's, it's quite low. Um, and these are studies from the B.F. BFTAF uh, study where they looked at, uh, uh, in that study, which was compared to two different dalutegavir regimens of those two studies, um, they actually uh, allowed people in that had really any resistance that wasn't resistance to TDF FTC or, or an integrase, uh, and in the abacavir study, you couldn't have resistance to Abac- where they compared to abacavir. Um, so they actually had quite a few people that had uh, NNRTI resistance, 76. They had some that had NRTI resistance, and they had actually a few who slipped in with some primary integrase resistance. And, and the bottom line really is that big tegavir, TAF, FTC, and surprisingly, they didn't show the data on dalutegavir, TAF FTC. <laughs> Shocking. Um, uh, but since the overall results were the same, I, I assumed that this, these data would have been the same. So, so really, it, there was no impact of uh, any of these uh, resistance uh, mutations on, on overall uh, success of, of therapy. The, the numbers are kind of small. Um, in the no virologic, obviously, there's some missing data. On the right are the data that where they actually did Uh, uh, that's their resistance analysis population. That's what RAP stands for in this case. And they just didn't see uh, any um, uh, resistance emergence except um, uh, in in, uh, uh, two uh, individuals. So it was uh, uh, really, really, really uncommon. Okay, so um, should we continue to do baseline resistance testing? You here in San Francisco, you ignore it, right, in your first... um, um, (laughs) Uh, so, uh, uh, do we do we need it? Is it, it? It's costly. Takes time to get back. We're, we're not using it. So, yes, no, or not sure.
4: It's not exactly what we said,
1: Gino. Mean, <laughs> you know, no. No, I'm exaggerating. Story. You're right. And before right. I storm off. No. yeah. Are you good? Let's go. Great All right. Let's see what we got. So yes, we should. No, we shouldn't, and and not sure. Um, Annie, you want to... I set
4: myself (laughs) up with that. I think we should, and I will say that while most of the time what we select is fine, we've gotten some unpleasant surprises along the way, and I would argue that in the North Carolina database, those are some unpleasant surprises as well that very much change your management and also lead to investigations. We've had some transmitted drug resistance mutations that were very unpleasant and wanted to track down and let people know and really be aware of that. And as much as we're happy that we haven't seen a lot of integrase resistance that's getting transmitted, that could change over time. I really hope that it doesn't, and I hope mm-hmm. that we're able to curate these drugs and, and, and take care of them. And much of what we're seeing is left over from the L-vitegravir, raltegravir days. But if you work hard enough, you can blow dolotegravir. <laughs> and I really hope that we don't do, we don't that, do that, we've learned that from, from some other data out there, particularly if it's not protected with, with sure. two active drugs. Sure. So yeah, that,
1: yeah, great, great, great answer. I think that's, that's kind of right on target. The, the Chip mentioned two of the three pillars of um, the end HIV in the United States. One was treatment, the other was prevention. The third one was finding people that are infected and uh, and, and Chip, maybe you want to comment about resistance testing actually helps with that?
0: Um, in, in terms of finding them? Yes, it does because uh, one of the things that uh, people are looking at now is using clusters of people who are tested for their drug resistance at the time they start therapy and matching those sequences up with sequences in the database you can start seeing hotspots occurring in uh, specific geographic locations among populations and use that to guide your prevention services Uh, that requires quite a bit of 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 infrastructure to do but it's a a better way to deploy what are always going to be resistant services that are or prevention services that are less than we really need to cover the whole population Uh, this was uh, something that was spearheaded by Joel Wertheim at the University of California San Diego and initially started in San Diego uh, to look at cross border transmission of HIV between uh, Tijuana and San Diego. And we found that, he found that there was actually more uh, HIV going from San Diego to Tijuana. Uh, the Mexicans wanted to put up a wall, but they really heard that, <laughs> up, uh, <laughs> and vice versa. Um, and uh, he, the the, uh, he then. Um, um, worked uh, to institute the program in New York City, which uh, now has a very active program doing that. And uh, uh, when the CDC first heard about it, they said it was uneth- unethical and shouldn't be done. Uh, now they've embraced it. Right. Uh, and it, they have hundreds of thousands of, of uh, sequences from 40 states in their database uh, using it. And I was in Mexico City last week uh, where the uh, Joel has a program going on with Mexico <laughs> Uh, with Mexico's uh, ENER, their um, AIDS, AIDS agency is beginning to be introduced there. So it can be done. A lot of places. I think it's a very uh, important adjunct to knowing what's going on with the epidemic.
1: Yeah, I think, and, and I think Chip and Connie are, are modest. They have been so supportive of this program in San Diego, uh, 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 with um, Davy and uh, Davy Smith and uh, Susan Little, uh, and who've really contributed to this field uh, uh, really incredibly. Uh, And and again, it's not to say who's infecting who and blaming and that sort of thing, because it's it's really hard to know directionality. There are some people who think with next-gen sequencing, you can sort of figure it out. But that's not as important as identifying people that are at risk. And also, if you find a cluster, you also want to touch the people that are uh, in that cluster who aren't infected, because those are the people that probably most need PrEP. Um, and I don't know, um, Hyman or Annie, in, in San Francisco, does the uh, uh, city health department do cluster busting, as some people have called it? <laughs> cluster <busting. laughs>
3: Yeah, we do cluster busting. Uh, but I think that one of the challenges that we've experienced is that there's this very long delay. Mm-hmm. So if you have a diagnosis, you want to really be able to reach out with partner services very quickly, you know, hopefully within days to reach individuals who might have been potentially exposed, get them access to... PEP, if it's indicated, get them tested in treatment. But um, there's often months delay between being able to match those sequences and make those connections. Um, and so I think really working on the infrastructure. But we have identified um, at least one cluster which was linked actually across the bay. Right. And so uh, so we have seen um, some transmissions that have occurred between San Francisco and the East Bay. Yeah, and we,
2: we've certainly, go ahead Connie, please. Just, to, again, to plug Joel Wertheim's program, he's a master computer programmer in addition to all the other things that he does and has a huge viral evolution section within our research unit. And he's developed an automated system for doing this. So this week's delay in getting to know yeah, what should, the sequences be are bigger. and then matching them to other sequences within the database, he can do nearly instantaneously now. Yeah. So that I think we are at a point in time, at least experimentally, where we can begin yep. to immediately target clusters of transmission within different venues to, to deploy our, our prevention resources in a rapid way. Not yep. quite as good as rapid start, but rapid yep. prep yeah, may be really on a good the point. horizon for yeah. those kinds of clusters, and I think the point you made and some other people in the audience have made, is are we really looking at testing the availability of resources rather than testing the initiation of these interventions? Yep. We are, sure. in effect. And, and, and this is yet another sophisticated resource that we'll have access to, and how that resource gets deployed and utilized is something that really needs to be investigated But if we're going to go beyond where we are right now, we have to be able to deploy sophisticated resources in an effective way. And this idea that public health should just be blanketly absorbed across the globe to everyone every time, we don't have the money to do that, and we never will. And so I think beginning to explore how to utilize some of these more sophisticated resources to really target hotspots is a one way to get that started And if it's
1: fast and efficient enough and it's done in an automated way, you could see how it saves resources because it takes people to go out and do contact tracing or partner tracing and partner notification that takes a lot of effort so Ann Dennis at our site's working with Simon Frost with a similar kind of attempt. so we had a question there, please. Uh, there, 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 there is. There, you, I'm sure. how I many you're going to talk about. Yeah, we're going to talk. Yeah, talk. Yeah, Because, um, uh, because there was interesting stuff at Croy about how uh, prep and and prep failures might be raising that issue more often. And so that that. So, but I'll leave that to the the afternoon um, uh, discussion. Great, you guys are so right on target. Um, okay, so uh, another uh, initiation question, and this one we might be able to do very quickly. This is a uh, same 35-year-old man who sex with men, diagnosed with HIV. Um, this time his CD4 is lower, though, at uh, uh, 335, and his viral load is higher. Um, he has type 1 diabetes since age 15. So, so his, um, uh, uh, he's had 20 years of uh, 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 diabetes, and like many uh, teenage diabetics, initially had quite poor control, but now is well-controlled on insulin. He has a family history that's positive for diabetes and an MI and a father at a young age. Um, his uh, ALT is normal, but unfortunately, his creatinine is almost three, and his creatinine clearance is 38. Um, he is um, in good care now, um, uh, with a total CD4 of 150 on a torvastatin. He's in a stable relationship with an HIV-positive man. His uh, uh, hepatitis C antibody—can uh, we let's make that negative, so, so not to because I think that was a transcriptional error. Um, changed everything. <laughs> changed everything. His hepatitis B surface <laughs> antibody <laughs> positive. He's B5701 negative, and he has a wild-type uh, genotype. Um, so um, now I'm really interested in what you want to treat this guy with. So CD4, 350 or so, viral load, 187,000, and a creatinine clearance of um, 38 in a diabetic um, with a very strong... Uh, family history and, and, and a personal history, uh, a personal risk with diabetes of, of myocardial infarction. So go go ahead and, and vote. Right, we're going
0: across the
1: Atlantic. All right. How do we do? Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> it's hard to get someone to give a different answer, and I totally, I totally get it. Um, which, actually, I was having a very nice conversation at, at breakfast with a, a, a PA who wants to get into HIV. I don't see him right this second, but uh, there he is up there. But, but anyway, he. I was saying how it, starting therapy is not so <coughs> complicated. Um, but in this case, I, I wonder about the choice of the group. Um, so who who wants to go? Annie, you want to go? Yeah I, yeah,
4: I went against the, the predominant 57%. So so just working your way through it, right? We said this guy has renal insufficiency. So And I can't remember what his creatinine clearance is. 38, 38, 38. That's close, though. I mean, I, I think if you could avoid TAF, it, TAF isn't less, it's not no renal toxicity, it's less toxicity, right? I mean, that's, I think, I wouldn't give him TDF, but I would stay away from TAF. I mean, he you know the direction that he's going in. So... If you have another good option, which I think you do, I'd stay away from that. A back of ear, you know, we can talk on and on about all the controversy, but you'd feel horrible if this guy had an MI, right? And you'd feel horrible if he had an MI in the setting of a back of ear. So if you have other good options and we can debate, I hear groans in the audience, but we can debate <laughs> about that. But, again, I'd stay away from it if you can. You can give it to him. He's HLAB 5701 negative. I'd stay away from it. Would I give him a boosted PI? No, I would not. Um, I think we've got good data, again, showing that in people who are – Vascular and at risk of coronary disease. Ugh, that's that's bad. And it's funny because that sort of everyone focuses on a back of ear and less on the boosted PIs, but the data there is pretty darn good too. So we know the mechanism for that, it makes sense. I would stay away from it. So what does that leave you? An integrase I think is fine, and we know that he can take an integrase. We know the Gemini data that we talked about this morning, dolotegravir 3TC is good for treatment start patients. It makes me nervous, right? Like I think it sort of goes against what all of us think it should be, but the data are the data, and I think we have to sort of start to come around to accept that. Um, I'll just point out that Jaluka or rilpivirin um, that's only in a switch study, not in a treatment start study. So that's why I think that's not an okay choice for this guy. Would it be if we had that data? I don't know. Um, but if you're going to go down that road, I'd probably suggest that you do it f- as a switch from an already suppressed um, scenario. So I picked Dalotegravir 3TC for him.
1: That was exactly the discussion I was hoping someone would give. It's like virtually perfect. Um, I, I don't know if anybody wants to... to uh, uh, lobby for TAF um, Chip or Hyman or?
0: I, I won't lobby for it I, uh, was the, I, I may have missed this was the person H HBV surface antigen positive or body positive
1: uh, antibody positive okay right.
0: great now that, that I, I'm all, all with it now what if the person were antigen positive so
4: that's that's a different story. And and if you really want to make it tricky, you could say, Well what for their core? You know, yeah, so they've yeah. been exposed. I think if they're surface antigen positive, it's a different story. Right. Um, and we can talk about giving them TAF and what their virus is. And the risk-benefit calculus just gets different, right? It's It's a different calculus, But I would even say core antibody, this is a person who's at risk of reactivation, but I wouldn't add TAF on just because of that. And I think there are real downsides of renal dysfunction and it getting worse, and this is gonna be multifactorial in this guy, and you're gonna spend a lot of time and a lot of gray hair saying, oh, is it the TAF, is it the TAF? Every time his creatinine clearance comes back at 25. So I think for you and your patient, you're just gonna save yourself a lot of trouble.
1: And I think that the, I did uh, uh, create, this is a created patient, unlike some of the other ones, but um, I did the, the issue of diabetes, right? It, once you start having a decline in creatinine with diabetes, it's unlikely to kind of reverse itself if that's the cause. Now, now, maybe he's lucky in some of his, I didn't tell you what color he was, but maybe if he was black, maybe some of his um, uh, uh, renal dysfunctions related to his HIV, that's possible. So th- that occasionally that approves. And and if you look at the START study, uh, creatinine's actually improved um, when when people went on therapy, mostly in and and people who are black or, or African American. But I, I'm I'm totally 100% with with Annie on this one. I think this would be one where you you, you would consider um, uh, the tegavir 3TC and. Um, Chip.
4: I'll just oh. point out that Hyman just stuck it to me and said, "Well, what about weight gain?" And I was like, "Oh, it's coming. <laughs> Don't oh, yeah, worry, it's, it's, coming. Coming. it's so, coming. It's
1: coming. <laughs> weight, weight gain is coming." Yeah. It, you have a question. It, yeah. You know, if I knew what about a back actually increased MI risk, I think I'd be a little bit happier. There's a lot of talk about maybe it's platelet aggregation. I frankly totally do not understand the studies that were presented at Croix last year. I mean, by uh, Patty Mallon and his group, I really don't understand him. Some people believe that that really helped confirm it was platelet aggregation. So again, I think there's an issue there. Um, His viral load is a little higher than maybe you would like, but I'm gonna show you some data in a second, maybe even right now. Um, These are the Gemini studies which Connie went through. You you really couldn't draw those lines um, over the each other, you know. Certainly, me with a tremor, I couldn't do it. Um, uh, but it, but it's really, you know, they're really superimposable. Viral loads could be as high as 500,000. Um, these are data that um, uh, we pre- presented at the Dart meeting in, in Miami. And and what you can see is, um, uh, I'll use the pointer if I don't blind one of our. Oh, oh yeah, what you can see is that it really didn't matter. Um, how high the viral load got. Now, the numbers are small, right? I mean, there's only, you know, 50 or so people with greater than 250. There's only uh, 20 or so greater than 400, and there are a few that got in that were even greater than 500,000. But there's no suggestion here at all. Um, In fact, the the numeric values are a tiny bit higher um, uh, with the two drug. And then Connie pointed out that when you look at that target not detected, which on average, if your patient is target, not detected, their their viral is probably less than five and and more likely even to be less than one. There was no difference. So I I think Annie's right. I think we have to go ahead and and believe the the, the data. It's hard for me. I mean, you know, beat into your head, right? Three drugs, three drugs, three drugs. It's really tough. But I I created a scenario where I think it really does kind of of, uh, uh, make sense. And and Connie mentioned that in the Gemini study, individuals that were less than 200 CD4 appeared not to do as well. The numbers were small in that setting. And, and most of the uh, difference had to do with either missing data or patients that had adverse events, not virologic failures. So, but, but, but Connie's 100% right if you're answering questions about this um, later on. Um, the people less than 200, that group, did not do as well with the two drugs. Um, so we've already been through this, but there are certain situations uh, where you might use um, uh, two-drug therapy. Uh, I, I think that you, you, I didn't offer a choice of, of uh, uh, darunivir, altegavir plus 3TC. That might have been possible, but I, g- again, agree with Annie that there are data um, uh, that suggests that uh, boosted PIs may have some uh, renal adverse uh, effects. Um, you could maybe use darunivir, COBE, or darunivir or tonivir uh, maybe with dalutegravir. Maybe that would avoid the high viral load issue that we saw with dalutegravir plus raltegravir. But I can tell you, every time we try to make a regimen that doesn't include an RT inhibitor, something doesn't go right. Um, and even when you think it should be really good, uh, and whether that RT inhibitor is a nuke or a non-nuke, it seems to be important, and I, I don't know why. Okay, so um, how are we over time? We're we're okay. Uh, Let me just look at this. Oh, no, this is a good one. So this is a, this time it's a 35. I I was thinking there was one in here which we could skip, but but, um, so so this is a woman now, um, uh, recently diagnosed, CD4 viral load still the same. She's no comorbidities. She's on an oral contraceptive. Her creatinine and ALT are normal. Her cholesterol is good. She's in a stable relationship with an HIV negative man. And it's her husband. Her husband accompanies her to the visit. She would like to become pregnant as soon as possible. She's 35. Um, she, she doesn't really um, want to uh, wait um, a long time. She's hepatitis C antibody negative. She's surface antibody positive, so she's immune to hepatitis B. She's B5701 negative, and she has a wild-type virus. So, so she'd really like to get pregnant soon. Okay. Uh, what are you going to pick for her therapy? Born, Lord, the the door, A lot of dead people singing.
2: All right. It ain't
1: me. It ain't me. Interesting.
2: Um, Connie, you want to field this one? Uh, no. <laughs> 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 but I presume you're going to present the data. So yes, I'll show, I'll show uh, the data. Yeah, but so you, can, you can talk about it. It's fine. Yeah, so there, there's we'll obviously faster. the people in the audience are aware of the cases reported of people who became pregnant while on dolutegravir. Te- del- mm-hmm. And when they were on Utegravir del- at the time of conception, there were four cases of neural tube defects that were reported. And this raised all kinds of alarm and cautionary uh, notes and changes to regimens and changes to recommendations. Um, Not to downplay these four cases, but neural tube defects are a relatively common birth defect. And so I think at the time those cases were reported, there needed to be a much broader consideration of other situations where you see neural tube defects and what contribution was actually the drugs versus background issues versus what the role of other drugs plays in neural tube defects and all those other considerations. So I think that's the reason that people chose something other than a dolutegravir-based regimen. Having said that, um, there has been some investigation with raltegravir, and that was reported at Croix suggesting that it was not associated with um, neural tube defect uh, abnormalities when people were on raltegravir at conception. Although the numbers were pretty small, and the data are inconclusive, I think with bictegravir again because there's so many fewer patients that are out there using that reg regimen in pregnant women. So, I think um, you can present the data. I think it's on your next slide. Sure. But what um, to choose in that setting, I think the raltegravir regimen is reasonable. People don't like to use efavarens. There was a consi- there was a long-standing recommendation against using efavarens in first uh, trimester pregnancy and that after many, many years of observational data and evaluation, it was shown to be not associated with a higher background rate of birth defects. So I think uh, for all the reasons that people don't like to use efavirins, it may still be an option in that setting. I think rilpivirine probably also reasonable. I think most of these choices are reasonable and the point being to avoid dolutegravir until that gets sorted out. Yeah, and I, t- I
1: try to create a scenario where there's a woman who could possibly get pregnant before you really have a chance to kind of get back to her um, and 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 alter her regimen. And and I think as con- here, these are the Sopamo data. Now, now, um, uh, so the background rate is probably somewhere around one in a thousand. Um, so this was almost one in a hundred. Um, it actually got a little bit lower when they had a few more cases, and I think, as of last week, they actually have now the data to look at, and they're going to start looking at it um uh, in uh, uh, with a larger end to give us a more precise estimate because obviously you see the estimate there that error bars are are really are, are really high and and you know remarkably, I think if you if you look at a faverns actually. Um, th- this is conception during uh, – uh, or exposure to these drugs during – around the time of conception. a faverns was actually lower, um, a- as low as being HIV-negative, really, and, and a very sti- tight confidence interval because that was the most commonly used medicine in, in, in Botswana. And then it's kind of – I don't know if it's uh, um, surprising, but if you actually give dolutegravir once a woman is pregnant – you don't see it again in the SABAMO study. They, I think, it was like two thousand women who got it during pregnancy. Very tight confidence intervals. They didn't see it. So it's just in this setting of around the time of uh, uh, conception. And I think, to me, one of the open questions really is is how comfortable people might be with tegravir, which is kind of structurally quite similar to darolutamide. I didn't show the structures up there. I oh, know Annie. What? 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 Yeah. I it? mean,
4: I, I think with pregnancy. The, we're just super careful. So I think I don't give Bictegravir and someone who, who might get pregnant, just because we don't have good data on it. I don't know that we know that it'll have the same neural tube defect issues or not. But two other comments that I would make is the TAF, for the same reasons, we just don't have the same data. So the recommendation, this is one of the few times you want someone still on a TDF-based regimen. Um, and then the last thing is that you mentioned she was on OCPs. And then there are all sorts of drug-drug interactions that I always want to make sure I'm aware of, but the last thing you want is to give her the recommendation, well, let's get you suppressed before you go off your OCPs, but then it affects her ART, and then she infects her husband, and things go south. So you have to sort of sort those pieces through. So for me, because I don't do this a lot with pregnant women or women who want to become pregnant, I just always have to go back and check the guidelines and really just, and as Chip Chamber says, for those of you who know him, if you're not looking it up and then he uses an expletive, you're. Blanking it up. You're messing You're blanking it up. It up. <laughs> but it's it's a. I think in pregnant women, it's a good reminder, or women yeah. who want to become pregnant, because uh, many of us don't do this a lot. So 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 read it, and they're good guidelines.
1: Yeah. So so these are the data from from Croy that Connie mentioned. Uh, again, the the data sets are small, but there didn't seem to be a signal for either raltegravir or elvitegravir. Uh, um, uh, so it's probably okay, raltegravir. I learned uh, in talking to Merck that there are actually hundreds of thousands of people that have received uh, raltegravir globally. Um, That doesn't mean there is, that isn't a good reason to say there's no signal, but it would seem that that is a good reason to think that if there was a large signal, we might have picked it up. So I I personally feel comfortable using raltegravir in this setting, I think if, you know, TDF-FTC, especially if everything else being normal would probably be a little bit better than TAF-FTC. Um, I think there's a couple important things that, um, uh, obviously, pregnancy testing should be done. Mm-hmm. Critical, kobe-cystat <laughs> regimens should not be used in pregnancy. This is uh, The guidelines say that if a woman is suppressed on a regimen, um, even if you don't necessarily have a lot of data about the drugs in the regimen, uh, a choice is to continue that successful regimen. So this is not starting a regimen. This is continuing a regimen, for example. In uh, a woman, let's say, who shows up, she's 20 weeks pregnant. Um, uh, she's on an efavirenz-based regimen. You know, It would certainly be fine to continue that. Um, uh, a real piverine-based regimen, maybe we don't have a lot of data, would be fine to continue that. Probably even a TAF-based regimen, though you could argue about it. But if they're on a Kobe based regimen, y- you need to take them off because then they get inadequate um, uh, exposure to the boosting, boosted drug, either uh, the protease or um, uh, L-vitegravir. So that, that's important. Uh, uh, and and, and the, the guidance, say, I, I, is the quote, um, uh, the chemical structure of bictegravir similar to dolutegravir, so that's the quote. And then for raltegravir, this, this is directly from the guidelines. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip this one. It's interesting. This has to do with if you really think someone's infected and you can't get the HIV RNA right away and you get the, uh, um, a fourth gen, if you can actually get them to tell you the signal to cutoff ratio, if it's high, they're almost, if they're in a risk group and they have a high signal to cutoff ratio, they're almost certainly infected. And, and if you're like San Franciscans and Berkeleyans, what are people from Berkeley called? Berkeley Berkleyites, then then you might treat that person. But um, So I'm going to skip that, um, skip that because uh, big tag here. Um, <laughs> 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 um, okay, so here's here's a case, similar guy, right? Um, uh, uh, he, he has a color now, he's black, there's a reason for this. Um, and uh, he started on Dahlia, Takeover Taf, FTC because he saw the, uh, the rapid-start people, and that's what they have. He does really great. It, within 12 weeks, his HVRNA is less than 40, and his CD4 is greater than 600. He returns at six months and feels relatively well. His HIV RNA is suppressed. His CD4 is still good. His creatinine and ALT are normal. He has a little bit of trouble sleeping, and he's a little more anxious uh, 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 than in the past. But he says, oh, you know, my job is stressful. Um, he weighs 188 kilograms. He did weigh 86 kilograms earlier. So he's a little bit... 88. No, 88. No, no, 88, sorry. It, my,
0: wow. no, they, yeah, he's not, sorry, he's not, he's not, he's not in
1: North Carolina. Is it? <laughs> if he in North Carolina, it would be 188. but here, I'm sure it's not allowed. Um, at, at, at 12 months, he continues to do well with suppressed HIV and no lab abnormalities. However, he's still not sleeping right, he's still anxious. And now he weighs 91 kilograms, so he's gained 5 kilograms or you know, approximately 11 pounds. Uh, he says he's exercising and has not changed, uh, abst- substantially changed his diet. Uh, so what will you do at this point? are your choices. You continue current therapy, treat his anxiety with counseling and maybe an SSRI or NSR, SNRI, uh, and refer to nutrition for diet and uh, advice, Consider changing his therapy to address both his CNS symptoms and weight gain, or you're not sure. And, and you're not sure you can say something else. Do you Pardon he's on Dahlia or TAF FTC. TAF um, uh, FTC, right, yeah. Ah, so we're changing. Excellent. So this will uh, allow us to go to the next question. Uh, uh, which is you opt for counseling SSRI and nutrition but he comes back four months later and says look it, I'm done with this um, he now weighs 93 kilograms uh, so you decide to change therapy which anchor drug this is going to be in two parts which anchor drug will you choose okay so you, I'm just talking about the anchor meaning you know the integrase protease and NRTI so, so go ahead and, and vote here and I, I've done exactly what Steve told me not to do, which is um, take too long. Okay, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, we're too close to, to um, Foster City or lunch. <laughs> <laughs>
3: All right. Uh, Ivan, what are you doing here? Um, so... I think as, as everybody pointed out with the changes, it's likely from dolutegravir, um, CNS side effects, and the weight gain that was reported at Croy. Though there does seem to be some controversy around um, if there are other comorbidities that individuals have that might be driving it. Um, but I think I would have switched him as well. Um, it does appear that not all the integrases are alike and that there might actually be a big difference between dolutegravir and the other integrase inhibitors. Um, and so I think switching him to bictegravir Um, would be something that could be tried and then monitor him closely and see if his weight does continue to rise and if his CNS uh, symptoms get better. Um, I generally shy away from the raltegravir because of the BID dosing Mm -hmm. and the lower genetic barrier. Um, We're seeing more, we're seeing failures more frequently with raltegravir. The durevarine or rapivirine I think would be interesting options. Um, I think of rapivirine as sort of like the patient who has the perfect adherence because if somebody does fail Repivirine they often have um, both NNRTI and NRTI resistance, um, and then so I would probably agree with the majority, the 32% with Pictegravir, but I think you have multiple options with repivirine, um potentially darunavirine. But
1: all right, I'm gonna gonna flip to the next question just quickly. Uh, would you change their nukes? Um, so go ahead and, and vote on that one, and this will be our, our last thing. So you can get lunch because this is kind of a, is a late lunch. Any comments? I'll just comment that, um, and I think maybe Hyman will talk about this, in the DISCOVER study where they compared TDF-FTC with TAF-FTC. The, that was a prevention study, which I won't go into the results, but the the men on TAF-FTC did gain more weight than the men on TDF-FTC. And and I know that there are um, uh, data that that... Should, should become available over time because there are several experiments that were done. Uh, remember, I'm gonna use uh, trade names, which I try never to do, but StriveBuild was compared with GenVoia, so that the only thing that was changed was, uh, uh, the only thing that was different was TAF versus TDF, so we'll see, so, um, but I, I think that's reasonable at this point. Um, these are the data that we uh, were beautifully demonstrated at Croy. This is the NA Accord. Showing that that over a five-year period, over a two-year period, there was about a four-kilogram, almost five-kilogram gain with NSDs versus NNRTI, uh, so a difference of about not quite two kilograms. So he's right around five kilograms, a little bit more. Over, uh, if you looked at darunavir. Uh, again, it was 6 kilograms. Again, you can see the confidence intervals are pretty wide, and this is what Hyman was talking about, real kind of differences between um, the uh, uh, various uh, integrase inhibitors. So, again, to be fair, this is not a randomized trial, and there was some really neat data from the ACDG that looked at people who switched from uh, NNRT-based to, to integrase-based and showed a really pretty... Uh, uh, obvious increase uh, uh, when uh, suppressed patients switch so there probably is something to it, uh, and unfortunately you're not going to get to hear the case about biologic failure on daliatiggririer, which was my my last case. Um, okay thank you. Thank you.